Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive new episodes a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Caitlin Smith, founder and CEO of Simple Mills. Simple Mills are clean, nutritious foods for a better life. It's that simple. I'm a huge fan of their products. We discussed the insight and inspiration behind the founding of Simple Mills, her approach to raising capital and picking the right investors, how consumer preferences have evolved since she first got started, and her approach to nutrition and thinking about better for you products in general. This was like an awesome conversation. Without further ado, here's Caitlin. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Doing great. Excited to be here. I am such a fan of Simple Mills, so really excited to have you on the show. This is such a treat for me. Wanted to start from the very beginning. What was the initial inspiration and a bit of the founding story for you um, founding Simple Mills? I started Simple Mills about 10 years ago. So in 2012, I was, uh, I was working as a management consultant, which meant I was constantly traveling. I was dining out a lot. I was eating a lot of packaged and processed foods. And I had an epiphany that the food that I was eating was really negatively affecting the way that I felt. And so out of a sort of experiment, I, I cleaned up my diet. And it, to my surprise, my, my health did a 180. And I realized just the tremendous power that food has to transform how people feel. I, I also realized that it was nearly impossible to find convenient, great tasting, nutritious foods, uh, especially on the go. I have this memory of walking through a, a grocery store in, a, in another city and realizing I had no great options. I, I walked out of there with just an avocado in my hand. <laughs> and, and, and so it, it, for me, it spawned this thought of, okay, how do you make it simple and easy for people to eat real food? Like you couldn't find prepackaged foods or baking mixes without artificial ingredients or high volumes of refined sugars. So as a result, I started playing around in my kitchen. I, I started playing around with muffin mixes, with some other ideas too, but muffin mixes primarily using only real nutritious ingredients. And Simple Mills really grew from there. In summer 2013, we started selling our muffin mixes on Amazon. And within six months after launch, we became the best-selling muffin mixes on Amazon, which was absolutely surreal. And, and that's really when I knew that we had something really special and it was going to make a difference for people. Shortly after that, we started selling in Whole Foods and Simple Mills took off from there. I mean, today we're we're in over 25,000 uh, grocery stores, but but really at the heart of our company and, and our mission is just this, if you, we believe that if you don't recognize an ingredient, your body won't either. And so we use only purposeful ingredients, only things that nourish you, never anything artificial. That's amazing. That's really, really incredible. Since, I mean, Simple Mills was also one of the first that were kind of part of this movement as well, what it was using, you know, real foods, especially for people that have maybe different diets or, or sensitivities to certain ingredients. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it was, um, <laughs> I think back to what the grocery store shelves looked like at that time. It's like the sugar was oftentimes the number one ingredient in a baking mix. 
Um, certainly no one else was using almond flour, uh, coconut sugar you couldn't even buy in the grocery store. I remember my mom discovered it on the internet and just thought, oh, I wonder if you could use this to sweeten your products. Uh, <laughs> so it's a very different world just 10 years ago. That's amazing. That's amazing. I know you said, you know, six months, it was incredible because you were, you know, number one on Amazon with baking mixes, which is phenomenal. And then of course, you were still getting into Whole Foods and maybe other retail channels and building out your wholesale business. When was the moment that you realized, okay, there was some type of product market fit here, or there's some type of, um, I know that Simple Mills, um, this definitely has a real future. This is not also just maybe playing into a fad, which could be maybe paleo or maybe like in a movement at that time. But there was a bit of like a longevity to it that could maybe give you a bit of confidence that, okay, this is actually like a real long business. Because I mean, obviously, it's been 10 years and what an incredible 10 years it's been. I think the pieces of that really occurred over time. I mean, one of the first things that stands out in my mind was when we first got the little marker on Amazon that said number one best selling muffin mixes, which I mean, within the first six months of starting to sell the product, I I couldn't even believe it was true. Uh, <laughs> I'm just like, oh, there must be a glitch in their system, right? <laughs> but, but I mean, even later on that year, my first look at our syndicated data. So, like the for those who are less familiar, the grocery retailers sell checkout data to these entities that syndicate all of the data together, and you can see um, how the product is selling versus other products in the space. To my shock and awe. It was top of the category, <laughs> which um, which I just couldn't believe, given what little I think consumer marketing we had done. That's that's awesome. That's awesome. How also did you approach you know kind of like consumer marketing maybe from the get go all the way up until now? Because especially I know you started off online, right? And then you of course you also got into Whole Foods where you kind of launched simultaneously. Because that was also for brands that are online. That was part of their struggle, especially now when it comes to you know rising CAC and you know there's no longer this kind of arbitrage opportunity with, with Facebook. How did you kind of approach like your online marketing per se and how you wanted to be perceived in the world and kind of match that with your marketing? I mean, I think how I how I proceeded with that and how I would recommend people proceed with it is probably two very different things. I had a lot to learn about brand marketing and in the early days of the business. I, I still remember one of my advisors or mentors telling me, I really think you should hire a traditional brand marketer and not really understanding what that meant. But, but I think that it's because there are a lot of almost rules and frameworks that are used for, for marketing a consumer brand. And there's a reason why those frameworks exist. And, but I mean, in the early days, my, my inclination, I mean, I designed our packaging and PowerPoint. I shot the food photography in my bedroom. <laughs> I edited it myself. I, yeah, it was it was very much a kind of thrown together idea. And I, I hadn't thought about the communication hierarchy of the package. So one of those um, brand marketing fundamentals is that on the package, you show what's most important first and make that really stand out. And I hadn't thought about from a strategic standpoint, OK, what's the most important thing to stand out? And so my package was just trying to communicate like probably 25 different things of, you know, gluten free, dairy free, soy free, gum free. And when I started working with some of our team members who are still with us today, they're like, you know, you need to be a lot more choiceful about what you're communicating. And now we've distilled that down into something that's a lot simpler, which is look like only purposeful ingredients, nothing artificial ever. 
and, and that's something that I think works much harder and also is less less scary too, right? Talking about all the things that something's not um, can make people afraid of their food versus talking about how positively our food can impact us. That's amazing. I mean, I think that also reminds me a little bit of my conversation with Madeline Hayden, who's the founder of, of Nut Pods. And she was saying how when she was started to grow on Amazon, that having that also really fast feedback loops from customers in terms of what they actually loved about the product, then you could actually use that as well in your actual marketing on your uh, for your packaging ideas, just in terms of how they actually describe the product to make it actually a bit, a bit more simple and, and accessible in terms of what you're actually trying to deliver. So that's amazing. I think what's also, to me, what's pretty inspiring about your story, I know you you leave Georgia and you head off to Chicago and go to Booth. I loved your Invest with the Best episode. And, and I know in Chicago, that's when you first decided to raise VC funding or, or outside capital. What was your approach when it comes to your actual maybe fundraising philosophy, how much money you were trying to achieve and the overall, and just how you approached your capital period? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think in the earliest days, it was about raising the minimum amount of money that we needed. And it was also about really just finding anyone who would invest in us. It's really easy to look back on something that's that's been successful and say, oh, my gosh, you must have had just people beating down your door. Uh, but it was really difficult to get funding. Um, I probably was talking to nine plus investors every day. Um, for months, just trying to find a lead investor or um, or a substantial number of investors to to pull together around. You know, I think one of the stories that that I love sharing is that the way that we actually ended up finding our lead investor was that I had I had talked to so many people that in a grocery store in Charlotte, North Carolina, the man who I had not yet met but turned out to be our lead investor walked in, went to the baking mix aisle, looked at Simple Mills on the shelf. And turned to the the woman, a, a stranger next to him, and asked what she thought of the brand. And she said, "Well, I'm thinking about investing in it." <laughs> so you have to imagine two people don't know each other in Whole Foods at the same time. That's how many people I had talked to. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know that I had the the opportunity to be quite as strategic about it so much as. We need to find um, someone who understands this and someone who this resonates with. And and luckily, we were able to eventually find someone who who did. But, you know, I think part of the question stems from what advice do you do you give to entrepreneurs as they're thinking about that round? You know, if you have the choice, if you have the ability to choose, I do think that one of the most important pieces with anyone, whether it's an investor, whether it's someone joining your team, is Doing business with good people, people who have um, good values and um, and are supportive of your business and um, are going to be with you through thick and thin because investors will be there with you through thick and thin. And there's many things that can't be put into a term sheet or into an investment round that, that matter. And you won't get to see those things until they happen. How do you think about the shift and maybe the change in retail dynamic? I know that you said even in maybe the natural food category that you saw a number of in muffin mixes that you saw, um, you know, still a lot of companies using a lot of sugar or sugar was one of like the most prominent ingredients for it. How do you think about, you know, like today's consumer and and also think about like competition as you as you think about this next chapter in in Simple Mills? 
I mean, I think I have to say first and foremost, watching the transformation of our grocery stores, whether natural food stores, whether your um, your conventional retailers, whether it's mass like Walmart or Target over the past 10 years has just been wonderful. I mean, it's been so exciting to see these shelves transform in a way that is so much more supportive of people's health and well-being. I, I guess I look less at the competition in terms of, wow, they're copying us, but but I think more than that, it's it's exciting to see, wow, so many consumers are eating better than they were before. Um, and so that's really exciting. The, the other piece of that question is just look like I, I think I really believe that a rising tide raises all boats. And what I try to communicate to our team is that our job is to help raise that tide. You know, it's it's something that I think we've seen these categories transform to to support people's health. But it, as I look towards the next frontier, I think about the positive impact that our food system can also have on our environment, for example. But it's kind of like our, our job in this space is, I liken it to Apple, where it's like, okay, if you have like a bunch of, for example, computer competitors and they're developing various technology, there's one whose role is really to define the leading edge and say, push the limits of what the next great innovation is going to look like. And then you see others follow suit. And, and so I think that's really our job in this space is, um, is to continue to push the limits on what healthy food can look like. How also do you think, I know that you had a previous point about, you know, maybe building a food system for the environment. How do you also think about, because this is kind of a hot debate in some ways on this show, at least about products that are better for you versus better for the environment. And sometimes that's not, that's not always the case. Sometimes food that's better for you might not be as great for the environment. And sometimes that food that's perceived to be better for you, maybe not actually might not be better for you, but maybe is better for the environment. How do you think about this in the simple mills context when you think about the ingredients that, that you're producing or that are in Simple Mills products? And then as well as how do you think about this as a consumer? Yeah, I mean, I think there's flexibility of thought that almost has to occur there. If like these things aren't black and white, there, there are things that are that are good for both. There are things that are bad for both. There are things that are good for one and not the other. And, and so I, I really see this as being an area that certainly has tension, as there are many other places that have tension. So like in, an, in the innovation process, for example, you're looking to optimize for a number of different things. You're looking to optimize for the taste. You're looking to optimize for a strong ingredient profile, a strong nutrition panel. You're looking to optimize to make sure the product's not going to be too expensive, looking to optimize for impact on people's health, looking to optimize for planetary impact. And these are all variables that you play around with. So they're not necessary. And sometimes they work um, in the same direction and sometimes they don't. And it creates healthy tension, I think, in the innovation process. It doesn't mean necessarily that the innovation process, though, is is easy by any means. I mean, I think it, it certainly adds more challenge to the innovation process, but it it is possible is, is the one thing that I would just kind of over the top come over saying, but it can be very hard. You know, we've worked throughout our history, even before kind of thinking about planetary impact was a part of our innovation criteria. We've worked with, we've tried to work with external food scientists and it ended up ultimately building it out in house because every time we'd go to external food scientists, you know, we'd reach a point where they just say like, that's not possible or we've done the best we can. And then we take it to our internal team and they get there 
Now, the thing about that, though, is it, it's not easy. Like, that's not, those are not easy conversations. It, it's a process that requires quite a bit of resilience from, from everyone involved. And so I think that's kind of where it comes down is it requires going that kind of extra mile or two to do the additional testing, to keep working at it, to find a different ingredient supplier. And sometimes that's where people stop. Yeah, I I had on uh, Seth Goldman and Chef Spike with their new product line, Eat the Change. And they were saying how finding, you know, co-packers are just isn't that many in terms of when you think about all the different sustainability checklists that they have, which they have probably a, a long checklist in terms of um, what the requirements are. And so, but for finding, finding co-packers, finding, you know, manufacturing partners, it's tough, right? It's tough to find people that you have a certain number of requirements for, and you obviously want to innovate, but you also want to do it right. And as well as it's then also, of course, more expensive uh, for the consumer as well. So I'm sure you're all, you're, you're also balancing that too in terms of how these products can also relate as well in, in terms of the, the, the final price. What's your approach when you think about new categories that you want to enter and releasing new SKUs? What's your approach for innovation in that kind of context? Yeah, I mean, for any, for any piece of innovation, there's, um, there's a whole host of criteria that we think through, whether it's profitability, whether it's kind of looking at our brand tenants and our ability to solve a real problem in those spaces. So making sure that there's, there's truly a problem that needs to be solved is thinking about how easily or how much our brand is going to resonate in that given category. So how much consumers would expect us to play there. Really, there's a whole host of things that go into that. But I think probably the largest one is is thinking about where we are in, in our development and in our life cycle. You know, some brands will go too fast into other categories. And one thing we've tried to be throughout our history is very disciplined with the way that we expand and making sure that we don't expand too far, too fast, so that we're able to um, to maintain a great fill rate. Give each product line the time and effort that it's due from a marketing, from a sales standpoint. So as a result, we we define our cadence a little less on the opportunities that we see, and a little bit more on the let's make sure that we're seizing the opportunities that are right in front of us before we go out and um, kind of seize another category. How do you think about this? I know that. As you said, when you're thinking about new SKUs, you're thinking about, okay, how profitable could these you know, new product lines be or new categories? But overall with the company, what's been in your approach? What do you think back as well, look back at the last 10 years about this tightrope, I guess, that you walk between growth and profitability, right? How do you think about growth and profitability as it relates to Simple Mills? Yeah, I mean, those are that's another place of healthy tension, right? And I think as you've observed, whether it's in, in natural food or in tech, there's been a lot of companies who have really placed a very heavy emphasis on growth over the past um, 10, 20 years. And investors have also pr- placed a very heavy emphasis on that, that it's almost growth at all costs. Like we're willing to pour in tons and tons of money to make sure that something grows. But the the cost of that is that I think that there's been a number of businesses that haven't built healthy business models. And that has to be a part of it too. I mean, for me, starting this business from day one has been about, okay, how do we maximize our impact on people's health and and, and now on kind of our, our broader environment? And 
impact. That definition, by the way, is kind of linked to conscious capitalism, which is this idea when you build a company that is focused around impact, but does so in a profitable, healthy manner, then you stand to make a much larger impact than you could with, say, a nonprofit, uh, which is what happens when you don't make money. <laughs> and uh, And so I think that kind of important to being able to make an impact is having that healthy bottom line as well. And um, and so it's been something that we've focused on throughout the years is making sure that that we are building something sustainable, no pun intended, it's sustainable from a financial standpoint as well. And my hope is that kind of in this environment that we're seeing shifting, that we'll see kind of more entrepreneurs shifting this direction too, of thinking about that kind of broader piece because cash isn't going to be free forever. During these past two years during COVID, what are some maybe changes that you've had to make or things that you had to adjust in order to adapt? What was going through your mind in kind of March 2020? <laughs> what haven't we had to adapt in the past two years? Um, I think that's kind of been the name of the game, right? Uh, I mean, aside from the really obvious of, okay, we're shutting down our workplaces in March of 2020. I mean, the funny thing was I, I started to see this whole thing coming in like January of 2020. And I think people looked at me when I had three heads, when I told our team and I was like, I don't think Expo West is going to happen this year. Uh, <laughs> and, we, and we need to start trialing Zoom. We actually had a Zoom trial day a couple days or a couple weeks before things started shutting down. As a result, in March 2020, what we were really thinking about, ironically enough, was how we embed regenerative agriculture into our innovation pipeline. And so it was a little less on the reactivity uh, to COVID. But I mean, I think the other big piece that I think about in terms of the shifts that have occurred over the past couple of years has been just the cultural impact of a hybrid environment. And, and to be honest, this is something that I still feel like I'm figuring out and like we're all figuring out, which is there's kind of coming back to those healthy tension points. I do think there's a tension point between okay, the benefits of in-person work and also the benefits to people personally from, from working remotely and thinking about how you balance both of those things. Like I, I think about, for example, especially for the most junior people who are very early in their careers, um, how they get that training. I look back on, I cut my teeth at um, at Deloitte and it would just like in management consulting and those two and a half, three years probably set me up for the rest of my career in terms of having the right way to think about things, work through things, analyze things, develop presentations, communicate. And, and so I'm so grateful for that experience. But I think training can be very difficult in a virtual environment. And so I, I think a lot about, okay, how do we create training and kind of bring up the next generation of leaders when they may not be getting quite as much exposure, even just that overhearing things that are happening in an office? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. I think also just, you know, collaboration is just different in person versus, you know, a Zoom call or remote, even, you know, async on Slack or or what have you. It's just a different energy, a, a different feeling when you actually are in person. And I feel like you can get so much more out of it from what you kind of learn from someone. Or if you're working on a project with someone, you have a whiteboard and you're able to actually just get that feedback there, especially for a young person that's kind of starting out. I'm sure that would be, you know, incredibly valuable. That, that it's really hard to actually be able to do that, of course, in a, you know, remote first environment. What have been some of the lessons that you've learned throughout your journey at, at Simple Mills? 
There's been a lot of different lessons. I, I think for one is that it's the healthy tensions, but it's also realizing that things are not black and white. I realize oftentimes that things get positioned as an either or, and that realistically things can be both. So it's kind of looking at things of and or in shades of gray. So I think that's that's one piece. And it, and it shows up in terms of us thinking about healthy tensions, for example, and and how you react to those. Another big one has just been the leadership pieces, which I came in feeling like like I had to have it all figured out. I, you know, I think I've I've struggled with perfectionism probably throughout my professional career, and I'm sure I will for for years to come. And I'm I'm a lot better about it than I once was. But coming into this CEO role or this entrepreneur role, I felt like I had to know everything, and. I've realized and learned over time that's, of course, not the case. And, and even still today, if I encounter a problem that I don't know how to solve, my first inclination is, is almost insecurity of like, oh, why don't I know how to solve this? And then I have to remind myself, well, that's why you're surrounded by kind of smart people who, who know all of or who, who know different things and have different experiences. And uh, this is also an opportunity to lean on them. No, that's helpful because I can only imagine how difficult delegating is when it's, this is your baby, this is your business that you you started. And of course you wanted to get everything right. But at the same time, even though you're the CEO, you can't you know do everything, right? Especially as you expand and now, of course, in a great number of stores. So I'd imagine that that was a pretty difficult to kind of let that go in, in some senses. Yeah, I, it certainly was. I mean, I think our head of marketing who's still with us today, when she first joined us, like she was just, she was one of the first people I'd ever, I'd ever led or managed. Uh, and she was just like, you got to let me lead this. I've got 20 years of marketing experience. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been a lot of good feedback that's helped too. That's good. Well, I'm glad that you took her advice. What are some of the missions that Simple Mills is currently working on or, or part of in order to you know create a much better environment? You know, my interest in this really started in 2019 when when I took a permaculture design course out of curiosity and wanted to see what it was about. So it was me and probably 15, 20 farmers. I think I was the only person in the class who didn't own land. Uh, and it was we were there on a farm for for 10 days. And and the more I learned about regenerative agriculture, the more I saw just so many similarities and overlaps and linkages to people's health, that so many of the same things that are true in our agriculture system are also true in our healthcare system, where it's, you know, as an example, we think about, okay, there's a problem with something. Okay, we give a person a pill, and then you need another pill to get rid of the symptoms from that pill. Uh, <laughs> instead of thinking about what natural food, what food can naturally do for you, I think we see the same things in our in our food system, which is that there's or in our agriculture system, and that there's so much ingenuity in nature that you know nature can take care of itself if it's if it's allowed to. So, as an example, for every in a healthy system in nature, there's a thousand beneficial species for every one pest, and so you don't need a pesticide or you don't need an herbicide because the the beneficial species will actually take over. So, the more I dove into this, the more I just felt such a strong sense of responsibility that, you know, I, I run 
and own a natural food company. All of us as leaders in the food space stand to make such a positive impact. You know, most, most industries, they can only stand to do less damage. Like imagine that you're the CEO of an airline. You can only stand to do less damage. But in the food industry, like if you think about what a tree is, what a crop is, that is stored carbon. That is carbon stored in a physical form. We can actually sequester carbon. We can actually kind of take care of our soil. We can create drought resistance in our soil. You know, kind of miraculous things that other, other spaces can only hope to. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? It's really difficult for me to, se- to separate the uh, professional from the personal books because I'm, I'm a nonfiction reader and I feel like they, there's so much overlap between how you show up professionally and personally. But so I'll just give you two books that I love. One is All We Can Save. So Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. And it's a series of, of essays, poems, kind of uh, thought articles on how we approach this climate crisis. And I think so many pieces around climate can be so doomsday and negative. And this book is quite positive and it's about what we can do. And there is so much that we can do. So I think that's a really needed message in today's world. The other one is the art of possibility. And I love this one because it frames, it helps you frame up how to think about problems um, or how to think about things in a way that enables you to see solutions that you might not initially see. And so the the example I think it gives in the start of the book is how Michelangelo would just look at a, a large block of marble and see what a beautiful statue that is, because he has, he's, he's already seeing what it's going to become. But I think we can all look at people or situations that way a little bit more, where it's a little bit less about like, oh my gosh, what a problem. Like I, I, I even was talking to our team about this in terms of a couple months back. It's like, you know, we've got a macro environment that's changing. There are going to be some very real effects of this in the world. And so thinking about how do we react and even kind of come out better on the other side. The companies that went into 2008 in a really intentional manner and kind of shaped their businesses in it accordingly came out stronger on the other side, not just okay, but they came out great. And and I think that that's when you look at kind of developing your team or developing your strategy that way, you come out with much more creative and beneficial solutions than if you go in with a, a closed mindset of just, this is, you know, a terrible situation or a terrible thing we have to work through. So I love that. I appreciate you bringing that up. I also think what's interesting too is Simple Mills, you know, started 10 years ago. And of course, we had this incredible bull market up until maybe now with this maybe recession. What were some of that in the area of possibility since Simple Mills had never been through, you know, a recession? What are maybe some takeaways that maybe have changed maybe your framework as we go into this period, which maybe we're heading into a recession, maybe not, but maybe a bit of a market downturn? Valuing the importance of of a healthy business model in tandem with growth. So this again gets back to these like these either or things that get positioned of do you want to focus on growth or do you want to focus on profitability? It's like, well, you can you can do both. So I think I think that's one of them. I also think that it changes, like you might change, for example, your, you know, I don't want to give away too much about what we're doing, but you can change, for example, your the way that you're running promotions of 
how you run promotions or what type of products do well in a recessionary environment versus a bull market are different. You know, as an example, in 2008, we saw consumers shifting a lot more into purchasing breakfast at grocery instead of breakfast on the go. So there's opportunity in that, right? And so you can find these different ways to apply it throughout your business. If you think about, okay, what are the things that are going to happen and how can I kind of take advantage of that? Not in a bad way, but how do I, how do I grow off of that? I appreciate that example. I like really what you said about from a product standpoint, how thinking of the opportunities like during a recession that, you know, breakfast actually at grocery is not a bad category to be in. And at the same time, also, you know, not thinking of it more of like a balancing act that I pointed out between growth and profitability, but actually how do you are able to grow, but grow in a, in a, in a sustainable uh, way that actually makes sense for the long-term viability of your business? The last thing that I would add on that too is the important piece for us and for kind of all of the players in the space is not trading in the future. Um, so it's like, you don't want to make these short-sighted decisions that enable you to survive today, but leave you in a worse spot tomorrow. Uh, so that's kind of the other premise to think about in this uh, newly reshaping world. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, Caitlin, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Likewise, it's been a blast. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Caitlin. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hold up. 